Hi, this is Fred Barstein. I am the consulting editor for Investment News on Retirement, also CEO of Trow and TPSU. And I wanted to welcome you to a special RPA Convergence edition of the Investment News podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Mass Mutual Investments and really appreciate their support. As many of you know, RPA Convergence, which is powered by Investment News, launched late in 2020, focused on the 401k defined contribution market and the convergence of wealth, retirement benefits at the workplace. So today's episode, we're going to focus on what has become an incredible phenomenon, which is the hot mergers and acquisitions, RPA, retirement plan advisor market. And at the forefront of that, we're grateful to have Dick Darian. Dick is the CEO and founder of the Wise Rhino Group, which is the preeminent M&A advisory firm in the RPA space. Dick had a very long storied career, most recently as the head of DCIO at BlackRock. He was at NRP before that, one of the major early on aggregators and also led sales at MFS when they did have a record keeping mission. So welcome, Dick. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here today. So one of the first questions I had is, I hope you didn't spend a lot of money on an advertising firm coming up with the Wise Rhino name. <laughs> you know, Fred, it's, you know, I was looking for something different. I think I accomplished that. And, you know, someone in the industry said, just start putting words on paper that resonate. And I want to stay away from things like fiduciary and blueprint. And, you know, after dealing with eight years of BlackRock compliance, you know, wonderful people, but very... You know, they run a tight ship. I wanted to kind of loosen it up a little bit. So came up with the name and certainly I accomplished one thing. People remember it. They do. And I'm all kidding aside. I think it's a great name and it really speaks volumes about you. So, you know, the first question, you know, that I ask and really I want to talk about why the RPA market is so hot and what's driving valuations. And, you know, we just Recently, there was a report that Sageview, which is over $100 billion in DC assets and the largest independent platform is on the market out there. So there's a lot going on on it. But, you know, you left a pretty good job. What is it? Almost like two and a half years ago at BlackRock yeah. before the market had really heated up. I and mean, what did you see and what made you think, hey, this is something that I want to leave a good, very, very, I'm sure, well-compensated position in the market. Well, you know, Fred, it's, you know, sometimes it's all about timing, right? So I, I would start with, you mentioned my career, and you know, I actually started as an advisor, went off to the, the dark side, the distribution side, then had five fun years with Bill Chetney and Bob Francis at NRP, and then settled at BlackRock and a couple things in between. But I would, number, I would say, number one, kind of understood the space from different angles, and and then had a great perch at BlackRock, probably the broadest base of business spread of any firm in the business. So kind of had the experience and, and was positioned to see what was happening. And Fred, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Any firm or any industry, excuse me, that could consolidate will. And, you know, you saw that consolidation affecting all areas of financial services. And the one area that was kind of left out of that was the retirement advisor space. You know, we had seen record keepers 
broker dealers, you know, national consulting firms. I mean, the Aons and Mercers almost, you know, in that small group of six firms have almost 50% of the large end of the market. You know, you had significant consolidation on the employee benefit and PNC side and even the wealth advisory side. And frankly, DCIOs are that's just starting to happen. But retirement advisors, there really wasn't a lot of activity. And so you started to see in 2017 and 18 the beginnings of that. But to me and to you and some others, we would talk about it. And it seemed very clear that it was ripe for consolidation. And for me, it was once I recognized that and it got to a certain point, you know, it's just kind of that flexion point where you say, hey, I'd like to be part of that. My 38 years, I can add value. I have tremendous empathy for these, you know, amazing entrepreneurs who have built businesses. And I felt she's were equipped to be able to help these folks through what is one of the most challenging times in their lives after family and faith and all the important things, selling your business is a biggie. So really felt excited and felt I couldn't miss out on that. I really wanted to, to add value. But in terms of seeing it coming, Fred, it was very clear. And so why is the RPA market so hot right now? I mean, it just doesn't seem like the COVID crisis seemed to slow it down for just a couple of months, but it's back in full force there. So what What's driving this consolidation? You know, is it the buyers, the sellers, is it both, uh, the market? What, what do you see? Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I'll go back to timing first. There had to be, if you think back 20 years ago and even sooner and, and to the NRP days, Fred, the beginnings of consolidation was just starting to happen. But you had to have advisors actually form in the independent RA world. So you had to have this kind of 10 to 15 year migration really out of the wires where retirement folks were still the redheaded stepchild. You had to have an independent marketplace. You then had to wait for the firms to actually build and form. You know, there was really nothing to, to consolidate or acquire 10 years ago. And so that was, the, that was kind of the starting point. I would also say that, you know, plan sponsors help by focusing on fiduciary and demanding different types of products and services and lower fees and more independence, et cetera. So, you know, I would say you first had to have the environment form. You then had to have, I'd say, the buy side form, meaning you had to have the insurance industry, the insurance brokerage industry begin to consolidate. And when we just got started significantly last year with the acquisitions, you finally had seven to 10 scaled insurance brokerage operations that were beginning to understand that retirement and wealth kind of sat nicely side by side to that. And then on the RAA side, Fred, you had CapTrust and Sainsview and a number of others that were beginning to grow and merge and get to the point where acquisitions were going to be a, a big part of that. But I, I would then say, the old saying, follow the money, you began to have significant private equity involvement, both on the insurance brokerage side, you know, we just saw GTCR come into play buying 25% of cap trust. And in other areas where the smart money was saying, hey, we know record keepers are beginning to pivot their, their focus to the participant. We think that firms like CapTrust and Save2 and others are also amazingly positioned to engage the participant. And it's not just the act of doing that. It's actually, you think about what happens in the middle, Fred, which is advising that participant in plan providing OCIO services and even managed accounts to then take over the wealth advisory business. So I think that smart money began to, to think that retirement advisors were 
equally, if not better position to engage that participant. And the multiplier effect of doing that and building out wealth advisory was going to be significant. So all those things kind of come into play, combined, by the way, with, I think, the age of some of these advisors. They've been doing this for 25 to 30 years. And I think they were beginning to, they started to think, well, what do I do next? But also, how do I monetize what I've built? And then how do I begin to recognize what's happening out there and seek partners? So I think, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's all of those factors. So you're saying that the PE firms actually see the convergence of wealth and retirement and benefits at the workplace and see there's a value there. Well, Fred, let me let me put it in terms of the dollars. So if you look at what, and let's focus on CapTrust for a second. So CapTrust was valued at 20 times EBITDA by at least five private equity firms. So that's a you know, 20x, which is above the market. To put that in perspective, the mega insurance brokerage firms like Aon, Willis, Marsh, you know, all those large Gallagher, their multiple is more in the 16 to 18 range. So CapTrust got a significant premium and pretty much validated the model, which was that we're going to use the retirement consulting operation essentially as a base of op- a base of operations to go after the participant. And there's going to be a revenue multiplier when that happens. So private equity firms get that. It's not just the act of putting together like-minded retirement businesses. It's actually the act of doing that and then monetizing the participant. And I think, you know, private equity is looking for four, five, and six times multiples on, on, on profit. And they saw that as a possibility. Right. And even record keeping where... We all sort of joke and say, wow, the margins are so low. Private equity is very aggressive in the record-keeping industry with firms like Ascensus and some of the larger market firms like Blackstone yeah. is in the market because they're seeing that participant. And, and, and you know, as we've talked about many times, there's going to be a fight between the record-keeper and the advisor and maybe a couple of other parties in there, but those are the primary on who owns that participant and who can monetize it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you look at the names, Fred, of private equity firms that have were involved with, you know, a census and Newport and others, these are the same firms that were bidding on uh, on, on CapTrust. And those are the same firms that you'll see entering the space. Again, the key is the participant. And the difference is they kind of got to know that. And they said, well, over here, we can work with record keepers. Over there, we can work with retirement firms. And it's the right. Same. And- I think your comment about plan sponsors, because to understand, I always try to go to the clients, my client's client to understand their needs. And what we saw was the demand and the expectations of service for the plan sponsors were rising dramatically at the same time that fees were dropping pretty precipitously. So there had to be an inflection point, and that might have driven a little bit of this activity. This Investment News RPA Convergence podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual Investments. They've been building investment solutions exclusively for retirement plans for nearly 50 years. It's in their DNA. Their investment solutions are designed to perform consistently over multiple market cycles. Through their rigorous process, they select investment teams from other investment managers and combine them using an open source multi-manager platform. Their assets are sizable, benefiting from scale, and their range of solutions is impressive. 
You may think you already know Mass Mutual, but perhaps not for investments. Maybe it's time to get to know them better and how they work with financial professionals and institutions in helping their clients and plan participants reach their retirement goals. Mass Mutual Investments is the marketing name for certain investment-related businesses, products, and or services of Mass Mutual Mutual Life Insurance Company in Springfield, Massachusetts, and its affiliates. So why are the valuations so high? And then, you know, I think for our audience, what are the valuations? What can an RPA, obviously an experience with a, a nice nice business, and you know, billion plus in DC or, or even a little bit lower? I mean, what are the going rates these days? Yeah. So, so Fred, I would go back to, you know, one of the two or three things I actually remember from college, which is an economics, which is, you know, simple supply and demand. So if you think about where where the acquisition, the M&A industry is with retirement advisors, and to some extent, well, there are many buyers seeking fewer sellers right now. So we're at the early stage of advisors selling their businesses. So just number one, it's simple supply and demand. That's one. I would say number two is many of the buyers are kind of not only building or, or growing, they're actually beginning. So many of these firms, last year and early part of this year, Fred, as you know, I work with One Digital with resources and 16 other firms. Well, that was their first purchase into the business. So firms will tend to pay a little more for that. And I think you see this early stage kind of running back, it's like the NFL draft, Fred, where you know, one offensive tackle gets picked, and all of a sudden there's 10 more right behind, right? So I'd say that's that's two. And I'd say those early deals, there's an adage in M&A that early deals tend to be the best. Those are some of the reasons. But I also think that, you know, you kind of began to focus on that multiplier value we talked about before, which is private equity and other firms understanding that these advisors had access to participants. And that was, that was a good thing. And, you know, what's interesting also is, you know, some of the best firms, Fred, that we know and that are the, the elite firms, interestingly, they're the ones that are actually selling. It's not the smaller, kind of less branded firms. It's many of the bigger ones. So you kind of wonder, you know, well, number one, they're going to get top dollar, but it is an interesting phenomenon. And then lastly, I'd say, Fred, go to the money. You know, you've got money flooding in from private equity. And I think that when you have that I'll say too, you know, too, remember, uh, you know, too many dollars chasing too few goods, I'll call that inflation. That's really been the increase in the price of the firms. And in terms of the multiples itself, I mentioned the 20X at CapTrust. You know, you're going to see these kind of larger regional players, you know, I'm going to say kind of scaled 10 to 30, 10 to $40 million firms that are kind of, you know, much smaller relative to the cap trust are still going to be in that 14 to 16 range. But for, you know, for a, and I wouldn't use the word typical, I was about to say that none of these firms are typical, but if you have a $5 million revenue business today, you know, you're looking at a, on a guaranteed EBITDA basis. And keep in mind for the audience, you're looking at EBITDA as the basis of any value times some multiple as the guaranteed proceeds. You're looking at kind of the, the 9, 10, 11 times range at this quote unquote market peak. And then for firms that are smaller, two to three million, certainly getting in, into the eight times nine in terms of a multiple. And then, of course, there's always an earnout that creates economic alignment over two or three years. And that could be another one or two times EBITDA. 
it's the low interest rate environment flooding the PE with money and and almost like free money. It is. In fact, you know, if you look at how many of these insurance brokers firms fund these deals, it's through debt and they're getting kind of low rates on that debt. So it's very cheap. And, you know, their most expensive commodity is their own stock because the performance has been stellar. So, yeah, that is another factor. That's what the whole LBO or leverage buyout market is about, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I had a friend who was in, when the interest rates weren't as favorable, he said, leverage buyout without leverage is just BO. So now it's uh, yeah. very, very. The other thing is, and again, I, I'd stick with the smart money. You, and, and to your point, you not only in debt, but where else can they put their money? And if you look at what's going on in any consolidation, at the systematic level, Fred, it's happening, right? Regardless of, it's not necessarily about a new idea Know, arbitraging or even executing, it's kind of like, well, if we just if we just kind of get in the river, it's going to bring us to a certain level of gain, right? Right. So for the next, you know, I'll just say five years, as these firms are getting bigger, and you know, look back at Aon and Mercer, there was a time frame when I started at my benefit consulting firm in New York, they were not that big, but all of the investment consulting firms over the last 30 years are gone. They were all bought by those firms. And you're going to see the same thing happen on our side, but just the act of that systematic level opportunity rises the tide for the ag- for those aggregators. And it does seem like in the last five years, retirement in and of itself has become a major issue in society, and we're seeing access, and more and more people are are retiring or thinking about it, and the lack of defined benefit plans and also Social Security, but. Let's get something practical for our listeners. What drives valuation of an RPA, you know, whether they're thinking of selling or even if they're not, but, you know, in case they do down the road, what are the things that drives valuation for a buyer and what are the things that lowers valuation? Yeah, Fred, I'd start with in real estate, you know, they say it's three things, location, location, location. I would say starting with m a in our world, it's financials, 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 right? So with the exception of firms that are bought for you know certain niche capabilities, certain brand or leadership, at the end of the day, these are financial transactions where the buying firm is looking at the the, the quality of the financials. And that's a function of then you know what we call fundamental drivers, which is what's the revenue size? The more revenue, the higher multiple. And then what's the EBITDA, which is essentially their profitability, their margin. And those two things, for the most part, are the most important factors in beginning to say, what am I worth? And that EBITDA, again, that margin is profitability. So that's a function of you know, the, the, the amount of the revenue, the quality of the revenue, how well you've managed your expenses. It gets into technology and efficiency and all those things. And keep in mind, we talked about those multiples. It's actually the EBITDA level that has a much higher impact on the value of the business than the multiple. Because for every dollar of EBITDA, you're getting, in some cases, 10 times that versus the opposite. So you really want to focus on that. So that is kind of by far the number one driver. When you sticking with the fundamental drivers, Fred, you've got the growth trend. Firms want firms that are growing. So having a trend line over two or three years of increasing sales and revenue 
is absolutely something that will increase the value of that business, you know, the run rate. And then it's the quality of the revenue. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, more and more firms are looking for fee-based versus commissions. And ideally, fee-based flat versus market-based, but fee-based for sure. And recurring revenue is, is valued over non-recurring revenue. And then lastly, it's, it's, it's about concentration. So what does that mean? Well, if you've got three clients that are 80% of your revenue, that's not good. That's a risk factor. So those are some things that are important. But I would say the new one, Fred, and maybe, the, maybe one of the more important fundamental factors is to what extent, this gets to the cap trust story, to what extent have you as a business begun to engage the participants? And what type of proof statement do you have in place to show that you can do that and begin a wealth business? So those fundamental drivers, Fred, are the ones that are most important. And then you know, we call them variable drivers, you know, geography, you know, nothing wrong with Topeka, Kansas, but if you're in Topeka versus Southern California, Southern California is going to be valued more where there's bigger population and, and more opportunities for cross-sell. And then you get into things like the quality of the leadership, brand's going to be important, staff, Fred, you know, G2, meaning, the, you know, are there, is there a younger generation coming up, technology and those kind of things. Well, you just lost our Topeka audience, Dick. Thanks a lot for that. Wow, what can I say? And so I would assume that the buyers are looking for the principal or the principals to stay post-acquisition, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting part of this, Fred, because I, I, most of these entrepreneurs have been, you know, on their own, independent for quite a long time, and. This is a, it's probably the biggest consideration is what's going to happen next. I've been reporting to myself now for 20 years, but those who embrace it and see this as almost a career change tend to thrive on the other side. But the buyer absolutely is valuing that leadership. They're valuing that entrepreneur's ability to grow the business. If you think about the two basic things, it's your current client base and the EBITDA. And number two is it's your ability to grow the business. And that's going to be a function of, the leader staying and keeping the staff on board. So, Fred, that is a critical factor. And that then leads to some of the challenges we see, which is age. And, you know, Fred, you and I are in our 60s, and you know, we see that now in the marketplace. I don't want to say it's ageism, but certainly there's a bias towards younger, more energetic, and, you know, people with a with, with long runway. That same bias occurs in the M&A side. So, you know, in terms of the value of the business, someone who's 42 versus 62, the 42-year-old's firm is going to be valued much higher. And there are many folks who have waited too long, Fred, to kind of look at that five-year runway. So now we just lost our older audience. Thanks a lot for that. Fred, you one by one, Fred, you know me. One by one, I will offend everybody, but I'll do it equally. Very good. Thank you. So assuming that valuations are probably at their peak and we're probably not going to see them go up much, if at all. What is the reason for an RPA who's got all of the things you talked about, all the characteristics that would attract buyers and, and nice valuations? You know, why should they not sell? What is the reason? Yeah. It can't yeah. be 100% one way. I know there's probably 80%, but try to look at it from the other side. So it's interesting. I, I think that having had some experience as an entrepreneur, I think that, you know, the challenge for these guys, Fred, is that what got them here, which was this very absolute focus on executing, 
is not necessarily going to be what's going to get them there. So there are many that aren't going to put their heads up and are going to say nothing's going to change. They look up once, they see the light coming down the track, and go, man, that's, that's not going to affect me. So it hits in the forehead. So I think that some people aren't going to pay attention, Fred. So we'll see. And But I think that others will say, you know, I want to go a different route. So I'd say maybe number one would be those that are looking for some type of succession. It could be family. It could be the next generation. So one would be, you know, don't sell. Let me let me continue to run this business. And Fred, I would say there's always going to be room for a, a, you know, a niche player. It's going to be challenging, but a well-run business will always have value. The second thing would be maybe a belief that the multiples will continue to grow and I'll defer the decision. Now, if, if someone had said to me, we'd be at this level of multiples during the pandemic, I wouldn't have guessed this a year ago, Fred, but here we are. But there will be an end to this. And then as that supply and demand dynamic changes, multiples will go down. That's just the sense of history. But so I'd, I'd start there with kind of that. Then I'd say there are some people that are just not joiners and they're going to remain independent no matter what. So and then I'd say, you know, mergers. The surprise that I've seen is that there haven't been more, you know, not GRPs or NRPs or even SRPs. That seems to be the the direction of those affiliations with three letters. But there haven't been more mergers of firms bringing together even regionally to then build out a bigger business. But I think that those are some reasons. Honestly, Fred, intellectually, if you look at back at any other firm in the business that's gone through consolidation, not this business, but other verticals, I'm wondering if they regretted not selling sooner when prices were higher. Yeah, and honestly, Fred, it's going to be really, really difficult as these aggregators are building their businesses. They're able to make their money on that middle managed account advice OCIO box and, and wealth management. And the old saying, they're going to be able to give it up on the peanuts, which is retirement consulting, and make it up on the popcorn. That's going to be really hard for an unscaled firm. It's going to be almost impossible to compete. That's sort of a good way to maybe end this is, can an independent RPA, retirement plan advisor, compete in a market that's now got more and more aggregators and scaled firms that have technology and capital, and some of them have wealth capabilities through other firms, some of them have benefits capabilities, and they can cross-sell. Can an independent survive? I think in a niche, in, in certain niche areas, yeah, whether it's expertise, but generally, Fred, how do you, if you look at any other industry that scales and where service demands change, how does that work? It becomes tough, Fred. It becomes tough to be able to do that. And if you're any of the record keepers today or TPAs who are competing with Empower and Fidelity and others, what do you think they're saying? Right. And I think we we saw that at the aggregator roundtable we had in 2018. We asked that question and they said they can survive because this is a very much a relationship business, but growth yeah. becomes more difficult, you know. As Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think there, you know, the question you ask is, you know, what are you fighting for, Fred? Why? The opportunities that when you sit down and go, okay, pros and cons, and you begin to, you know, forget the money, forget all those things. You begin to see kind of the sport changing, and it's like adopting technology. Why fight it? And there are so many choices to find partners. 
It's not selling out. It's not giving in. It's just evolving. And the opportunities, especially on the career side, are amazing. So you just wonder. So, yeah, I think, you know, competing is a is a word that is tough to define. But I would say kind of that box two and three, the investment advice box and the and the wealth box. That's going to be hard to replicate and scale the way that these large firms are going to do. And the just to be clear, there's a difference between the affiliate model and you can affiliate with GRP and not be acquired and resources and pension mark and SRP. Yeah. You know, that's that's a whole different animal, right? Um, then it is. Yeah. It is. Oh, one last final question. Why, why should a, an advisor use an advisory firm? You know, there's Wise Rhino, there's others that are there. I mean, as opposed to doing that, what's what's the value of using an advisory? Firm? Yeah, you know, Fred, I, you know, it's fun, it's interesting. I've been in the investment business my whole career, yet I still have an advisor, right? So I always tell people, ask me, like, why do you, you know investments? Why do you use an advisor? And I, I kind of joke and say, well, I, I, I hired her to protect me from myself, and. Yeah. You know, we get emotional. So, and, you know, and I'll, I'll throw in, you know, anybody who hires himself as a counsel has a full for a client, right? So I, I would say, you know, just the, you know, the basic things. Other than that is, you know, look, the, the overall process is really important. It represents one of the most important things you ever do. It's what, it, you know, it's what we do for a living. And we've spent, I've spent my whole career understanding the buyers. I've been an advisor. so. Just managing the overall process and putting a process together is no different than the work they do for their client. And they'd answer it the same way. Why does a plan sponsor hire you to do the work? But I think one of the more important things is establishing the cell firm credibility. And it's a lot better, easier, more impactful for a third party to do it, Fred. You and I have talked about that quite often versus someone talking about how wonderful they are, which can be really difficult. I'd say, you know, one of the things we see that's interesting is, we, or we've heard, is that the distractions that this can cause, I mean, the deal fatigue, Fred, is real. Even when I'm hired, some of our clients are like, I can't wait till this ends. If they had not hired us, they'd be doing so. That That's critical. And then, Fred, you've heard me talk about us being kind of e-harmony. The money is always going to be there. The, more, the most important part of this is matching. Who is the right firm for me? both quantitatively, qualitatively. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on that. And we've, in mind, we've done over 50 transactions. So we've gone deep with all of the buyers. We know them intimately. And we can just go to a level in matching that these other firms can't do. And then lastly, I'd say, you know, at the end of the day, it's negotiate. You know, you want to have someone there who is going to do the hard negotiating and know what the buyers are, are going to pay, know, know the structure, know the tax, all those things. And and then, you know, Fred, last thing I'd say is the post-deal relationship where in this process, quite often when our firms are going to the buy side, they're then counting on us to help them recruit other firms. So it's the beginning of that relationship. Well, Dick, I wanted to thank you for your time and your expertise and congratulations on your success. And I think people know how to reach you at the Wise Rhino Group. There probably aren't a lot of Wise Rhino Groups out there, so we can do that. And I wanted to thank everyone for listening. You can hear us, uh, this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. 
and of course on investment news and also uh, RPA Convergence, uh, which is the satellite portal to investment news. So this is Fred Barstein with RPA Convergence and signing off and thank you for your time today and hopefully you'll find this uh, valuable and keep listening.